Hello, my name is Winnie Bernard, and you're now listening to the ICE Podcast, a podcast about innovators, creators, and entrepreneurs from underrepresented communities. My final guest this season is Julian Christian Lutz, better known as Director X. X is an award-winning, multi-talented director, artist, and truly an all-around creative. X grew up in Brampton, Ontario, Canada, and went on to become one of the most sought-after music video directors. If you're a fan of hip-hop or R&B like I am, chances are you've seen his work. From directing iconic videos for Usher, Sean Paul, Aaliyah, Jay-Z and Drake, the list goes on and on. But it doesn't stop there. His multifaceted career has reached far beyond music videos into directing feature films, television, short films, and more. X has done a lot, seen a lot, and continues to actively contribute to our collective culture through his art, creative genius, and now with his new meditation initiative for kids. I really enjoyed speaking to X. He dropped a lot of gems. I think you'll love this one. Meet the legend, Director X. Hi. Hey. Thank you so much for having us here in your studio in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, I've admired your work for a really, really long time. I grew up watching your videos because I think we're about the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an honor to be here with you today. Thanks. We have a mutual friend that grew up with you in Brampton that told me the story of how you got your original moniker, Little X. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you would tell the story and what that name means to you. So back in those days, when I got the name Little X, that's when hip-hop was still very conscious. You know, you had X-Clan and Terminator X and Public Enemy. And the majority of hip-hop was very political and very conscious. And, um, you know, being a light-skinned, mixed-race boy, discovering his blackness, of course, you get extra, you know the deal, you go extra blacky, blacky, black. (laughs) Blackity black. Blackity black. And it's a tradition shit, like, you know, Malcolm X and Louis Farrakhan, Elijah Muhammad, these are all light-skinned cats. So... In that tradition, <laughs> yeah, there, there was this black youth conference, and uh, I went there, and you know, I read my Malcolm X books, and you know what I'm saying, we're all, and I'm, but I'm doing it, and they're like, you're like little, you're like a little Malcolm X, and then uh, it became Little X, and then it stuck, and I would also, when I drew, I said, I like that name, when I would draw pictures, I'd put Little X, like on, it looked like a clothing line, in my own little universe of drawings, Everyone wore like a little X shirt. There's little X was always on something, but so when you people would see the art, they would see the name and that be oh little X and you're a little oh so you're a little you know what I'm saying it just it pushed forward so it became my uh, nickname. So I just held on to it. I started doing poetry. I used that as my stage name. Then when I started doing videos, I signed it little X. Um, let's talk talk about the drawing because you touched on that a bit, and I know that you've sort of always been creative, but you started with drawing. Did you think that you were going to make a career out of that? Yeah, when I was younger, definitely. I thought, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, I thought I was going to be a comic book artist. Then I found myself interested in graphic design. So I thought, oh, well, I'm going to be this graphic designer. And then from graphic design, I got interested in filmmaking. And then here we are. And before you got into filmmaking, you sort of started in the music industry. And how did you get um, interested in that. The process is a little different. So I'm this kid, I'm interested in graphic design. I thought I was going to be a graphic designer. And then I, I got an internship at Much Music, right? So 
I did the internship as kind of a thing to do. It wasn't like, ha, my master plan to become a director will start. I mean, like I was, I was just gonna do this internship. But while I was there, I was like, oh, the cameras and the light. So this is creative. This is creative like the art, I guess. You know what I mean? At the time, I guess I had my own snobbery, like a lot of different arts. And then while there, so, oh, no, this is actually an artistic expression. This is interesting. And led me that way. So that was the tie with the music. I was not some music. The, the dream, yeah, the being in the music industry is uh was not the goal or not wasn't the driving force. It was being a director. And in order to direct, I wanted to do these music videos. And the music videos I wanted to do were hip-hop music videos, you know? And even the people that I was interested in as filmmakers were, it was Hype Williams, who was a hip-hop music video director. So you talked about Hype Williams. How did you get started working with him? I normally tell people persistence, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had to, you know, I sent a package down full of like, you know, I'd done a t-shirt and I did people's logos and I did flyers and, you know, I, I had made this, my time at Much Music, because I also did the poetry, spoken word, I made a spoken word music video, essentially, a spoken word video and got help from people at Much Music. So, you know, remember back in those days, there were no computers and all that stuff. You had to do it by tape. So it was impossible to get to make a music video without professional equipment. So while I was at Much Music, I was able to do this. I did this poem with my friend, and then I got like the editor and one of the cameramen and shot my own thing, and I was able to make like a music video. So I was, you know, the impossible happened. I was saying the words in the, you know, my mouth is moving and the words were matching <laughs> in the video. And then as well, since I had this professional equipment, I had slow motion and I was doing dissolves. Things you could literally do with your phone right now. Mm -hmm. Back then. You couldn't do that. Could not do. No. Slow motion was, you couldn't do that. <laughs> I was a big deal. So I had all that stuff happening in the video. So I have this poetry video, a t-shirt and a package of my art and I send that off with a letter like, hey, I'm 19. And even before that, even to get at Hype Williams, this was before Google. Yes, so yeah. how did you even get to him? Right, so I've, I'm reading Vibe Magazine. Vibe Magazine had this uh, little like one, one page write-ups on uh, people and one of them was about Hype Williams. So I took that package and I sent it to the writer. And... Um, you know, I'd call and call. Eventually, the writer answered her name's Mimi Valdez. I remember her. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mimi Valdez now manages Pharrell. She's yeah. one of the producers on uh, Hidden Figures. Yes. Right? And, but this person was this major change in my life. So I got her on the phone and I said, hey, if I wanted to send something. Even then, I guess my time at Much Music, I understood. You don't say, hey, give me Hype's number. You know what I'm saying? I said, if I wanted to send something to him, who would I send it to? He said, uh, Akilah Fraser gave me a phone number, hung up. All right? Not rude. Well, it depends how you check rude, but like, <laughs> I'm just some kid. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's an, but I didn't even know that. You know, being Canadian, I'm like, oh, they must have got cut off. I called back. Yeah. <laughs> must have got. Something must have happened. Something must have happened. Something must have happened. But I had that information now. I now had the address and the phone number. So then, again, call the number. If I want to send something to Hype, who do I send it to? They give me a name again. Send off the package. So and, Hype Williams got your package. Well, here we go. I, uh, you know, now I'm calling them. Have you seen it? No, we haven't seen it yet. Have you looked at it? We haven't looked at it yet. Have you seen it? Oh, we have it, but we haven't looked. So I'm calling and calling. And, um, you know, there's a persistence you can have when you're young, right? When you're uh, 19, just 
to ring a phone and people were like, okay, well, he's 19. This kid's a person. You know what I'm saying? It's actually impressive when you're young. So I'm calling, calling, calling. No one's looked at it. And then Cardinal, so that summer, um, he had this summer program through Fresh Arts called Maroon Squad, which is like Fresh Arts was doing their thing, but Maroon Squad was this thing he ran. And Julie Black was in it, and I was in it, and Jelani. There's all these, essentially the kind of like the kids who had done enough in the city that they didn't need, that, you know what I'm saying? Putting them in Fresh Arts would actually have been a step back. Mm -hmm. They were already on their own out there doing things. So we're all now in this group, and Cardi puts together a field trip, essentially, and we go to New York. And in New York City, you know, we're going to see record labels and it's like this tour of the industry that he had set up. And uh, which, again, shows you even why Cardinal still is... Um, relevant today. Relevant in the city, yeah. yeah. And a key in my moment as well. Like I'm saying, the universe is working with you. So now I'm in New York City where Hype's company is. So now I call again and uh, this time the person says... Uh, we don't know what you're talking about. So being uh, 19 and hot-headed, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get my shit back. He's like, I worked hard on that. I'm going to go get it back. What yeah. do you think? I mean, it's crazy now to even think that's yes. my response, but I mean, that I'm, I was a kid. Yeah. So I went to the office, and no one was there except for the office manager. Okay. So I'm like, well, you're going to watch this. Someone's watching this. <laughs> um, But it's also what I what I say to kids and say, what should I do? You should shoot something and show people. Every, anybody, everybody. You should just be showing people your work. This is how people know that you do something. You don't save it for that one moment. Man, you know what I'm saying? It's, okay, oh shit, here's a guy that might be able to do something. So you run up on them and with all your, you know what I'm saying? Now you put all the chips on this one meeting. And what if it falls through? And, what, and yeah. chances are it's going to fall through. Yeah. Because this guy that you think is the link there's a bunch of other people who think he's the link. And everybody's, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I, um. You go I, in to go get your shit yeah, back. Yeah, I go get my, get my shit back. <laughs> I said, you're going to watch this. You're the, I don't give a fuck if you're the receptionist. You're watching, someone's watching this. And I show him and he goes, oh, you should wait till Chelsea comes back, the producer. Okay. Wait, Chelsea comes back and gets her on lunch. Show Chelsea. And say to Chelsea, look, I, I know I'm good enough to work for free. I want to be an intern. So then I'll come back in a month. We'll be back with more Director X. Looking for a custom order for t-shirts or sweaters for your company or your special event? Antika, that's E-N-T-K, can print it for you. Affordable and ethical. Get them your designs. They will take care of the rest. Visit them at entk.ca. That's entk.ca. Being told to come back in a month wasn't good enough for Director X. When he returned to Toronto, he quickly realized the city had gone too small for him. He needed out. So two weeks later, he was back in New York City. The day I walked in was the day Chelsea was leaving, quitting. Last day on the job was the day I walked in the office. You feel what I'm saying about the yes. universe at work? Absolutely. So... I am now in there and, you know, she's leading all this stuff. And uh, the executive producer, Kiki, looks at me and says, I don't know who you are or what this is all about. And so I just showed up the next day and started working. Just like that? I did a George Costanza. <laughs> you really did? I just was there and I just started working. And then you never a, left. I guess, all right, well, I guess this kid works here. 
<laughs> He's an introvert, I guess. Because, again, it wasn't like a corporate structure. It was yeah. literally a big fucking loft space. You know what I'm saying? So then time goes by, and then uh, you get your first big break. Like, you do other things, but your first big break is really that Redman video, if I'm correct. Well, yeah, it's, there's still time in between there. It's yeah. not like, oh, you're intern and now. No. You're think, you know, I'm, I'm staying at my aunt's place in Flatbush. Okay. In their tiny guest room, there's no television. Like there's no there's no comforts there. I don't know anybody. Okay. So I just spent a lot of time at the office. But sometimes I just would not leave. I'd just be there and decide. All right, I'm going to rearrange the furniture. And right. is it from spending so much time in the office that you started getting better and better at the craft? No, no, no. Or... Still just making myself useful to the like. There's all these levels. So you're an okay. intern. Your skill as uh, as an artist is one thing, but you need to be useful to the organization. So they'd come in and I'd rearrange the furniture. Then one day they everyone came to work and I'd move the desk in front of the door and I put all the chairs. I made it. A, I made a waiting area and a desk and a certain thing. Now you walked in, you knew exactly, and you stopped and you spoke to him, and then you sat in the chair. Now suddenly the office was an office again. Then we had uh, a tape library. We didn't have a tape library. We had tape boxes. We had a box filled with tapes. And so go find the Wu-Tang video. And then you went to the boxes and you dug through all the... And then, ah, I was like a scavenger hunt every time something needed to get done. They came in one day and I had taken the Much Music tape library system and given it to them. And then I drew. So I'm now, so I'm there as an intern. I'm rearranging things. I'm giving them tape systems and I'm running packages. I'm in the rain. I'm just all that stuff right you're showing value i'm showing my value and then i'm just doing the grunt work of being an intern this is before emails people had to deliver things this is you know what i'm saying you had to bring a tape to people like i had they needed someone in the office that they could send out right and i was that person so i'm doing all that kind of stuff i mean then as well now i i meet hype and they can see that i draw and i'm with i'd work in the office during the day then i'd spend night at night, I'd be with hype because they're, you know, they're editing or they're color correcting or I'm, I'm in those scenarios as well. So I'm getting to be around the business and that's really where I'm learning. Not, I wasn't, again, the same. I need a mentor. Director X, will you be my mentor? You know, take me, it's, it's, and again, you never really think it through that you're asking someone you just met to bring them into your life. Excuse me, can I now be an intricate part of your life at all times, and then you teach me all your secrets because I want that to happen. For me. Sounds like a good deal. You, you feel what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying. What happens is, you're an intern, you run packages, and in the process of running packages, you get to be in the room while Puff is doing something. One day, Puff is in the studio and you gotta go take this, go take this to Puff. And now you're in the studio with Puff. You just sit down, kid. Let me show you how mixing works. That's not how it works. You sit in the corner until someone tells you to fucking leave. And you know what I'm saying? If you get lucky when they're ordering food, they might say, hey, you hungry? Yeah. <laughs> they remember that yeah, you're yeah, there. Are you hungry? Yeah. 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 Okay, I'll take the the penny. penny. <laughs> so these were the big wins as an intern. Yeah. Getting to a session in time for the food order. <laughs> I survived. I survived when, with this process. But when did it progress for you? So it's all, that's what I'm saying. This is all building now. So yeah. within your office, you're building up your value. Yeah. Right? You're doing things and they're seeing your talent. Right? You, you, you'll get a moment to say, hey, now's your time to say, hey, look, I did something. Person in the office, I did this. Hey, kid that works for free, I'll watch your thing. Oh, shit. Smart and this is not bad. Okay, kid. And then we move on. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That's a much more realistic 
scenario. Yeah. And then one day they say, oh, here's an opportunity for they want somebody and we need a little, you know what I'm saying? We need a little, we got a little job happening. Now that's when all that work comes together. And they go, oh, our intern should do that. That's perfect for so-and-so. But anyway, so now I'm doing all that, doing the work, and now Def Jam has a little thing. Oh, okay, let's give him a shot. And they gave me a shot. They wanted to shoot back when they would shoot like little commercials. Cormega was um, an artist from Queensbridge. So he had this commercial where he wanted to do the scene from Scarface, right? Where he's, you remember Scarface when he's, uh, they're interrogating him, mm-hmm. right? He wanted to remake that scene from Scarface. And I'm like, okay, cool, I'll shoot that. But then give me one of your songs and I'm going to shoot like a quick little music video. Give me sort of like a verse and a chorus. So I have a verse and a chorus. So we shoot his scene. And now with the people that I've been meeting, you know, uh, Malik Saeed is a director of photography who worked with Hype all the time. Uh, He shot feature films. He shot music videos. And so I decided to take the scene from Scarface, but I wanted to light it like the scene from Clockers. And the scene from Clockers, he did this really interesting, like, bright light. It's this wild. If anyone is... If you're a filmmaker watching, Google uh, uh, Clockers Interrogation or Clockers Police Station. You'll see it. It was really, a really amazing look. So I decided I want to do that. Now that I've been interning in this space, I get to call Malik Saeed and say, how did you do that? He goes, oh, I did the light and there's this many stops and you know what I'm saying? And so now I got that look and then I go downstairs and I shoot this thing. And now I have something that looks good. I got their little commercial, but I also have this little halfway music video that I can now show people that I've shot something with an artist and you can see the talent in there. You know what I'm saying? And in between this whole time, getting to this point is me, you know, trying to direct my own self. It was actually a turning point because up until that point, you know, I was hanging out with Hype, but I wasn't reading. I wasn't really studying. I was just kind of around. And I did some local little music videos here in Toronto. So I did like two, three videos and they looked all right from what I learned in my style. And, you know, I'd done some stuff. It was cool. Right. And then I got from those videos, one of the directors at Big Dog put a call in for me. The thing you want to happen. Called one of the record labels, said, hey, this kid over here is really talented. Give him a shot of one of these videos. So I shot a video for Pirate MC featuring Buster Rhymes. And I completely fucked it up. Completely fucked it up. I didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm working with it. It's one thing. Again, there's all these different stages of filmmaking. You with your friends shooting your short film is fine. You have no... You're all friends. No one can say, well, I know more than you. And you feel, oh, boy, he knows more. Like, you know what I'm saying? Just, you all can't equals. Be, yeah, you're all yeah. equal, so you do your thing. A film set with the lights and the things and the people and the guy who's been shooting and the, the, all these people who have way more experience than you and you're, this is your first time doing something, you can get intimidated and, and power is a vacuum. So if you aren't there competently doing your job, other people will. So I completely fucked it up. It was completely horrible. I was I was devastated and thought, all right, well, I've fucked it all up. Here I came to New York, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to be any good. And again, those relationships from the internship, I was able to call Hype and say, you know, I had this horrible, and he gave me this pep talk about, you know, fighting the feeling that you're not good enough to do it, right? And uh, Alan Ferguson, this uh, director of photography, who is now married to Solange, talked to me technical stuff about lighting and this and Kinoflow and all this stuff about... But the key moment after that big failure was that I went to the bookstore and I bought every book I could. To study up on it. I studied up, right? So I'm reading books about equipment, lighting, hair, makeup. Every, I'm reading, 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 studying, studying, studying. So now when I get my Cormega shot, and I remember I looked at a light and I said, scrim that light. 
And I go, he knows what he's doing. Not, I said it to myself, like, <laughs> I said that. And the learning had seeped in, and now it was coming out. And the confidence as well that you could do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that you begin to get go down the, that yeah. road. But that was so. That was the big moment for Def Jam because after that, Def Jam gave me a shot to shoot uh, Richter scale for EPMD. Okay. And uh, Bad Boy gave me a shot to shoot Black Rob. I dare you. So you know these. I was shooting right, and then after that, Def Jam gave me a shot to shoot uh, Red Man. I'll be that. Which is the video that changed my life. Yeah. Right. That was when it was a big hit video and it was great and everyone loved it. And you know what I mean? It was the moment. And from that, I was in. Would you say that music videos sort of helped you uh, uh, in the art of storytelling? Because from music videos, you went into doing feature films. Yeah. Um, I've always, I guess, I I credit my comic book background okay. as my storytelling um, so I was doing all this stuff. So I was learning about art and and music. What music videos are good for as a filmmaker is a space to experiment. You're doing these short little clips that happen really fast, and even more so, like if if a director wanted to work with me, I would much rather w watch his music videos and watch his TV. If I was going to watch his commercials or his television stuff, or his even his movies. I would need to know who did this edit. When did they pull this from you? Because the way commercials work in North America, you shoot it and then they, the agency takes it. It's almost like you're a DP. Unless you're a bigger director, right? Bigger directors are involved in the edit, right? And even then, they can still get to a point where the agency's in there doing all kinds of craziness. But for the average commercial director, thank you. We'll give it to you when you're done. Your music video, that's your idea. You shot it, you cut it, you finished it, and you hand the finished product back. So coming out of music video, I learned the entire process. You feel what I'm saying? Absolutely. And and, and when I, I can look at a music video director, give me three of your videos, and I'll, I'll tell you the type of film. I can tell how smart you are. I can tell how technically knowledgeable you are. Um, you know, I can, I, I, everything I need to know, I can walk, I can get from your music video because I know how much of that comes from you, right? After an extremely successful career directing music videos, Director X was ready for something different. And in 2015, he moved into feature films with Across the Line. The movie was about a Nova Scotian black kid who was uh, on his way to being drafted by the NHL. He played hockey. And everyone knew. He was that level. Like, okay, what team are you playing for? The agents are, you know what I'm saying? It's not, a, it's not a question if, it's who, when, what team will he play for. But it's wrapped around the culture of uh, North Preston. So you remember when you were in school, you heard these stories about the slaves of America. And they ran away in the Underground Railroad. And they ran away to the north or they ran away to Canada. The end. That's it, yeah. <laughs> and there, and that's the story. And you never, and never does anyone say, and they stayed. Or yeah. that's always the story. Well, North Preston is, that's them. Okay. That's who those people are. That's the community. These are the descendants of those runaway slaves you heard all about. They live in Nova Scotia. They live in this town far, far, far from the city. Right? Like half an hour away from Halifax. You drive, 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 drive. And then you turn. 
down a road and you drive, 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 drive down that road. And then not until recently, I mean, until like maybe 2010, that road turned into a dirt road and you drove down that dirt road. And then at the end of that road was North Preston. So how had you heard of the story of this the, uh, So Floyd Kane, kid. Floyd Kane was the writer producer and he grew up in, uh, I believe they call it East Preston. So okay. right next door, there's another black community. So the racial tension in Nova, in Nova Scotia or Halifax was high for a long time. So North Preston is homogeneously black. Again, you don't go there unless you intend to. And you know how this shit works. Yeah. So those black kids grow up in North Preston. They go to grade school. They would go to junior high. I think just recently the junior high, one of these schools burnt down. So now I think the junior high is integrated. But it, in the 80s and 89, you went to an all-black grade school. Then you went to your all-black junior high. And then the white kids, there's a working-class um, white community. Right. And same thing. It's all white. And then in the genius here is now that everyone is young teenagers with hormones and rage and all that stuff, they put them all together in a high school together. Okay. So all these black kids who've never been around white people and all these white people who've never been black kids are all crushed together in a school. And they had a 70 person riot one day, one day. Right. And it's big controversy. Big, con you know, it's a small town. So you can imagine a 70 person race riot in the high school. What I mean, if that happened here, what the fuck did that mean? So it was massive. And then the cops showed up. And of course, the cops treated all the black kids with great respect. <laughs> they came and they came and de-escalated the situation. They asked all the black kids what the problem was. No, of course not. It didn't happen. Of course not. The black, you know what I'm saying? You know what happened. Yeah. Cops showed up like it was madness from the from the, the initial incident between the kids, the police reaction, what all this stuff was absolute madness. Floyd was at that school when that happened. So he's always had this story to tell about this community, about that event. And that was the inspiration. When it was originally written, it was meant to be that that event itself. But just we didn't have the money to do a period 80s piece. So we just used it as an inspiration for it. In the movie, this kid uh, played by, so the NHL prospect is played by Shamir Anderson, who's super talent, one of our best actors. Um, you know, he was in a Beale Street Could Talk, nominated for Golden Globes, you know what I'm saying? And it's, uh, the one brother is going to the NHL, the other brother is getting involved in pimping. And, the, and the, how those two stories go. Telling that story that super Canadian black story, like, again, you're, you're a white guy and your parents are from, one parent's from England, another one's from France, and then you're, first, you're born in Canada, you're a white Canadian, first generation, but you're Canadian. No one ever looks at you like, well, where are you from? There's just this thing, like, you're white, first generation, and that, that same Canadian might turn around and tell a Nova Scotian black person to go back where he came from. And they've been there longer. Since the 1700s. That's right. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. So to tell that story of real Canadians, and I mean that with all with all the feeling that that comes with, I'm it's a story about real Canadians. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, a traumatic experience that happened to you in 2015. Uh, you were hosting a New Year's party, and what happened that night? So there was. I got shot. I got shot that night. Somebody shot someone else on the dance floor. 
The bullet went through two people and hit me. Ended up in me. In my back. Um, yeah, you know, so. I know that after it happened, um, because you got shot at your own party, you blamed hip-hop culture. Um, a culture that you are part of. Mm -hmm. We consume well, yeah. every day. Mm -hmm. What role do you think that hip-hop culture really played into what happened that night? Uh, there, there's levels to it now, as okay. I understand it. So at the time, I was looking at like what makes sense. So in a culture where everyone's talking about killing, 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 of course that's going to, especially if you're watching it from young and, you know, it, it gets in your head. But, there, of course, there's factors that lead into that in that type of environment, but there's later on I began to understand that that isn't, because there's a whole world of kids who listen to hip-hop music and don't decide they're going to go start shooting each other. So it's not just music. It's, it's a seed that can be planted, but it needs the right soil. And that soil needs to be uh, a dis you, you had a, a good disadvantaged community or someone feeling like they've been, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you plant that seed, it can grow. But now, as I became much more, um, began to learn about the brain and the, sci and the science behind the brain and even how to, you know, read a study. And just as my interest grew and I started to find this information, I began to find that the decision, the way the brain works is tightly connected to violent and yeah. aggressive behavior, right? So when they looked at the brains of violent and aggressive people, they found that their amygdala, which controls your emotions, was too big, it was this overactive, it was too large, too much space to play. And their prefrontal cortex where decision-making happens, this is, this is the executive function of the brain, social interactions, behavior, all this stuff, decision-making, long-term planning, your prefrontal cortex lacks volume. Right, so, so I find this study here. It's okay, that's interesting. Then I came across um, some other studies that talk about uh, childhood abuse and neglect. Yep. Children that are abused and neglected, it affects how their brain develops. And amongst those regions is the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So now you begin to see here is now we find the roots of it. And when you say abuse and neglect, you think, oh, okay, the house, it's happening in your home. But you know, you can be in an abusive neighborhood. You can be in a neglectful neighborhood. You can be, you know what I'm saying, neglectful schools. Like abuse and neglect isn't just doesn't just start in the home. Or if vice versa, you could be in a very loving home, but you go outside and it's a, it's a madhouse. You know Absolutely. I mean? So here you have abused and neglected kids affecting how their brain develops, their ability to handle their emotions, their ability to make decisions, and those how the, how this all how they interact socially, growing into adulthood with that same trauma to their brain. When you read the studies on childhood abuse and neglect, they actually call it permanent brain damage. And when you read the studies on violent and aggressive behavior, they don't bring up anything about where it comes from or how it can be fixed. They just say, this is violent people, this is what's going on. But now that people are really studying what meditation does, mm -hmm. they found that meditation shrinks your amygdala adds volume to your prefrontal cortex, adds volume to your hippocampus, another region of the brain that's damaged by childhood abuse and neglect. And your hippocampus is where learning and memory happen. So meditation now, here we go. Because again, no one's ever brought these things together. You can reverse the effects of trauma. 
And now, as I dig in and study even more, stress has very serious effects on your prefrontal cortex. That stress, constant stress, can begin to have uh, structural changes in your prefrontal cortex if you have enough of it, which now brings us into a conversation about police and teachers. These are two high-stress jobs. And... Again, when we talk about stress, there's this kind of undercurrent. So, you know, oh, I'm super stressed out. You're like, oh, boy. well, now that you guess you're, since you're in the stress, you're going to feel the stress. But then when the stress is over and you get a moment, it'll all be gone and it'll all be fine. But now what we understand is that, no, if it's constant stress, if you're in this stress constantly, it's not a matter. There is no, there is, a, all right, I'm out of the stressful moment, but the damage is done. And then if it keeps on happening, again, it can have, structural changes to the brain okay so now we now we so let's let's put the big let's add all these elements together so you have a community of uh children mm -hmm. that are whether from the home or from the environment uh are experiencing abuse and neglect okay so you could and you could say this about the hood but also now we're talking about neglected kids you know, those school shooters in america like why the kids from the suburbs has two-car garage mom and dad he has an xbox in his house why is he shooting up this place? Because in order to get the two-car garage with the Xbox and the, all that stuff, mom and dad were never home. He's been neglected, which is just as bad as the kid who every day he went to school got jumped or attacked or the police were fucking with him or his parents or whatever, whatever the abuse had the same. So here we have these kids coming out of abuse and neglect, growing up with that effect on their brain, right? And while they're there, if you're in the right school, you're going to school with this teacher who's been doing the job, and every day the job is fucking stress. And the worse the school is, the more stressed out, which is now affecting their brain and how they behave, right? So you have these, these teachers who are stressed. Their prefrontal cortex has been affected by this stress, which affects how they react to situations, their social... Like, all these things are affected. How they behave is now affected. Doing now, So they behave, they snap at the kids essentially abusing the child right? mm -hmm. or neglecting the kid. So they got it in their neighborhood or they're getting at home or they're, maybe they're getting in school. So there you go and get that. Then they make their way to their teenage years and adulthood. And this kid who, whose uh, ability to process emotions has been affected is now a teenager running around doing, you know, living life in the streets. And now they get to meet police officers who their whole existence is, is this stress that's been after, you know, years, every single day. This is your day-to-day -day job. The structural makeup of their prefrontal cortex has also been damaged. So the kid who can't handle his emotions and can't make good decisions then gets into these interactions with adults who... <laughs> is also uh, consuming music that's right. talking about killing right. and, and bees. Then you, and, and then you add yeah. all that in, yeah. right, every day. You're you listening to these... Also, all this stuff, you mix all that up together. Yeah. And now this is what we got, you know, abused kids are getting abused by like everyone's everyone's traumatizing each other and deepening the digging the hole deeper. Faced with that overwhelming amount of research about the stress and trauma endured by kids, Director X decided he needed to do something. And so he launched a program to help them. So Operation Prefrontal Cortex is, is uh, an organization uh, working to bring meditation into these environments where people need that repair to their prefrontal cortex. So 
young, violent and aggressive people, teachers, police officers, that the the stress of whatever it is, the stress of the job or the stress of growing up or all the stress of all this stuff that's been having this effect on their brain can be corrected with meditation. And that's what the organization is doing. So we're working on two sides. There is this institutional side, mm -hmm. which is going to the schools and going to the correctional system, going to the judges and to the politicians and saying, hey, you need to implement a meditation program in your schools. You need to implement a meditation program or you need to implement meditation as part of the correctional system from sentencing all the way into the, in, into the institutions, into the, you know, right? And we need meditation in our police departments, right? So we're having, as an organization, we're having those conversations. And you can, as you can imagine, it takes time. Absolutely. But also, we are having these conversations, what we're having, getting this information in the hands of the public so they can say, hey, I want to meditate. It's something that might be good for me. So they can learn about the benefits for themselves and then go out into the world explaining this and saying, hey, I want this in my school for my kids. Hey, I want the police to do this. Hey, I think we should be doing this in the jail. When the people start speaking, so when those, when those institutions hear it, not just from me showing up one day, but from the people, they say, oh, this is something we should be doing. How are you funding this program? Uh, we have a GoFundMe. Okay. Yeah, op-pfc. Uh, you know, GoFundMe.com slash op-pfc. X, what do you hope your legacy to be? I don't know. You don't know? No. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> That's, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever meet those, you ever meet like an artist friend of yours? You, you, you come across like maybe sometimes singers, producers, and you know, they're talented and you know them and they know they're talented. And then they're one day they're walking around with like a camera crew. Yes. And you're like, yo, who are, who are those people? Oh, that's my camera crew. I'm documenting the such and such. And you're like, okay. But there's a part of you like, you hired a camera crew to follow yourself around? Yeah, you know, because the underlying is, I've got this, got it. Someone's got to record this greatness, you know what I'm saying? Someone's got to document this amazingness that I am. And no one ever cares. You might be a talented kid, and I know those folks, and maybe they're listening, and I'm not a diss to them. But when you hire your own camera crew, when you're really concerned about your own legacy, you probably don't. Well, that's you, what I just did here. Like, that's what this was all about. <laughs> <laughs> that's why all the cameras are pointed at you. Exactly. Now <laughs> you get it. Right. But, uh, but you, you feel what I'm saying? Absolutely. There's, there's, there's something about the ego of that that yeah. actually works against Absolutely. it. Yeah. So if there is a legacy to be left behind, that is for other people to do, other people to decide. And you know what I'm saying? Because it's a very real reality that this program could work, and you know, they're not building statues to me. Like chances are, there will not be a fucking uh, director X statue in Toronto somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like that's just that's the way this works. So hey, if the work we're doing resonates enough, or the art that I've made, or these things have happened, and there's the legacy talk and it's beyond me and my friends. Fucking great. I think he already is. Uh, my last question. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? Well, I've been designing a statue of myself that I'm planning to. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's great. It's got to be documented. That's right. That's right. I'm I'm saying. I'm working. I'm a a working director who is now doing, you know, this kind of thing. But next next is Nuit Blanche. So that is coming up. So Nuit Blanche is a one-night art festival in Toronto. It goes from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m., normally like the end of September, the beginning of October. It fluctuates around that time. And you walk around the city, there's all this art, it's free, you can see it. And they've, last year they expanded it out, so you know, there's uh, there a piece out in um, Scarborough. I did a cre- I creative directed a piece that year with uh, Echo, where he did this uh, le- uh, a little black kid riding a, a unicorn okay. made completely out of Lego, which is really cool. So, but in 2016, my first piece that I did was Death of the Sun, and that was at City Hall. And the City Hall piece for Nuit Blanche is that's the piece, like that, that. That is the that is the main stage. Piece de résistance. Yes, it, it, and really, the reality is for Nui Blanche. If city, if the city hall piece is dope, it's a dope Nui Blanche. Everyone hits the Nui Blanche one. I'm uh, sorry, the the city hall piece. Although now we're doing Dundas Square, so I tell folks make sure you go hit Dundas. You know what I mean? But now we got two big things, but still, city hall is the one. So this year, I'm going to do another piece at City Hall, and we're again building off of the last one. I'm going to be projecting onto another sphere, but this time it's called Life of the Earth. And we are projecting our home, our planet. And it's going to start at Pangaea before the continental drift. You're going to hear dinosaur sounds and all that kind of thing. So, you know, you'll see the continents drift apart. You'll hear the, the hit of the meteor, the silence that follows, and then you begin to hear the return of life, these grunting sounds, tools, right? Tools turning in the drums, drums turning in the flutes, you know, tools turning in the metal, you know, music and civilization. We see this all happen, you know, first time a gunshot, you know, gunpowder and trains start and tele- Morse code begins to happen and then, you know, the electricity happens and you begin to see the lights turn on because there's going to be the dark side and the light side of the planet. Okay. You begin to see the cities light up and then the cities light up and then you hear more music and you hear radios turn on and jazz music and rock and roll and hip hop and, you know, all these things, televisions and airplanes and cars and all the sounds of our civilization and um, it's on, tilted on an axis and you're going to see the ice caps as they slowly melt okay and finally go away and then after they melt those city lights and those sounds stop so this is all in october in toronto october 5th well thank you very much for your time great and i hope to see you soon again thank Thank you. you great that's all for now thank you for listening this season The ICE podcast was executive produced by me, Winnie Bernard. Our producer and editor is Alison Vicrobeck. Our associate producers are Mark Perry, Talarn Orsassian, and Sarah Foster. Our first season might be over, but make sure to subscribe to our Instagram at ICE Podcast for exclusive video content from all our interviews this season. It's been a pleasure. Bye for now.